I'm Gab, he's Nadim, but don't worry, Jules fans, Jules will be with us a little bit later on. It's the Gab and Jules show. Uh, Nadim, uh, thanks for coming on board. Uh, what a show. Mm-hmm. We're back. It's the first show of the season, baby. I am psyched, I'm hyped, I'm amped. My heroes are no stamps whatsoever. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about the Women's World Cup. Lots of surprises already in the tournament. Jules will be joining us for that. But let's start with the Community Shield. Yes. You were there. Yes. You had the opportunity to speak to people after the game. Um, like, my first instinct is to go all Rio Ferdinand and say, meh, it's a friendly. And Is that what the, you say after you lose, though? It's, is it indicative of anything when in the last 10 years, only once has the Community Shield winner also won the Premier League? Mm. As somebody with City Roots, though, I'm assuming... Cole Palmer scores that worldly. You're like, oh, good. Once again, we've pulled it out despite a crappy first hour. And then you get that. Yeah, the double deflection goal. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I think you, you approach the game and you think, because the way City have done it in the past, like last year when they played against Liverpool, they'd only played two preseason games before it. So you had a feeling, well, this is kind of another game in their progression for the season. And as the game happened, you could see they were like a step behind Liverpool. Liverpool, I thought, were very dominant in that game. City were very poor. But this game was different. It felt more tactical. It seemed like the players were sharper on both sides. It wasn't the most, like, obviously entertaining game. But no. from a sort of deep thinking side of it you could you were trying to figure out how the team's going to play City with the two sixes Rice going in there alongside Partey for example and it was interesting it was intriguing but not in a way which you could sell to somebody let's say so the game went ahead from each side there you come to try and win something you come and you're playing against a really good side whichever team's two teams playing it's always going to be a really good side so it felt important and I think the celebrations when Arsenal scored to make it 1-1 showed that it was important because there were lots of disappointed City players as well then to take the jump to go to penalty kicks, you know, that is weird because no one was probably thinking about penalties about 30 minutes earlier. But Arsenal, they celebrated right. it, you know, so it does it does matter. But for City, I think, you know, they've lost four out of the last five, but they've done pretty well over those last five years, you could yes, say. Yes, I think they have done reasonably well. Um, <clears throat> we'll get a little bit more in the game and, and what you saw, but just in terms of taking the temperature of these two teams, we were talking off air before, um, City, to me, just in terms of numbers, and this thing always bugs. I've been saying this for like three years, and Pep's won everything, so <laughs> clearly I'm wrong and Pep's right. But when people talk about, oh, City have so much strength and depth. They don't. Yeah, when you get past the first three big names off the bench, no. and then you're in Cole Palmer, Calvin Phillips, Rico Lewis territory, which, hey, may work out, Yeah, may not. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I remember you saying this last year as well. And... The strength and depth argument is a false one. I think they've got some really good players and some depth in some areas, which looks really outstanding. But there are a lot of unknowns that come past a certain point. And I, I, when I really sort of realised this this season was when they played Atletico Madrid in the, uh, I think it was in Korea, in Japan, I think it was. And City made seven changes after like 60 minutes. And they were bringing on, I think it was Kovacic, it was Calvin Phillips, it was Rico Lewis and it was some younger players. And then at Let's Go Madrid, we're bringing on Memphis Depay, they brought on Llorente, they brought on Correa. They were bringing on all these players like, wow, like that's depth because they basically made 10 changes and the team looked felt exactly the same. Whereas hey, City didn't. I think where it becomes relevant is in the context of a season where they're going to have to, you know, they, they played at 62 games last year. This year, on top of that, they're going to have to uh, travel to Saudi Arabia for the Club World Cup. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a compressed season going into the Euros. That's where it becomes relevant. We're going to get into that a little bit more on, on the Gavin Jules podcast. But um, in terms of Arsenal, 
Uh, were you surprised to see? I know they said, "Well, we signed Urian Timber as a as a fullback, and obviously mm. he's played right back before." I hadn't seen him play before. He did fine. Other than that, what, what stood out for you with with Arsenal? And don't just say Havertz. Havertz is finishing because that's, that's just mean. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm not one of those people that jumps on the Havertz finishing thing because I still think he's a very good player. I think it was. He's in, the best on earth. I think it was interesting that uh, Arsenal were prepared to just bang the ball long sometimes. You know, they would play out from the back but they would bang it long. And the reason they do that is one of the reasons why I think they signed Havertz. He wins a lot of duels. He wins more duels than he loses. I think he wins like two thirds of his duels. And that is essential. Those are essentially numbers of a dominant player. He's a big, strong boy. He's People big, forget that. He's they, a big they, unit. They look at him like, oh, look at him. He's like five foot eight. He weighs yeah. about 50 kilos. Like, no, 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 no. Anyone who plays against him knows that when you're trying to get the ball off him, especially from something in the air, it's tough. So that was an interesting dynamic there. I thought the way that they started tactically in terms of trying to limit City's play, maybe forcing him out wide to like an Akanji on the left-hand side who's not as natural as say like an Ake would be or a And got schooled by Saka a couple of times. Yeah, a couple of times, but that's, you know, Saka, like it happens to anyone and everyone. But the tactically, I thought they were a lot better than the last time they played City, which was at the Etihad, where they basically they were overrun within the first 10, 15 minutes of the game. You knew exactly what was going to happen in that match. But tactically, they seemed a bit more mature. I think at times the attacking wasn't as free-flowing as it had been in the past. Which is understandable, given Declan Rice only just arrived. Yeah, and you'll see the best of him eventually. You know, when you when he's playing for a club where he's the best player, but the side like West Ham, they're okay. It's different to then being in the side where everyone's good and every detail matters. Um, so I, th- I was impressed by them. I think they'll be in and around it again, but it'll be interesting to see how that marries up with, say, some of the other teams who are trying to finish at the top. But then also what they did last year, everyone's got it on tape now. Everyone's seen how they did it. So as a consequence, everyone will think they have a plan to try and slow it down. Like you're not going to go one on V1 with Saka or Martinelli. You'll find a different way. No, and I think that's probably why he, he brought in some of the players he did and, and, and certainly a striker like uh, like Kai Havertz. I'd be curious to see what happens when Zinchenko is fit, where he fits mm. in, because I can't see him playing mm. uh, a timber-like uh, left-back situation. All right, let's, let's stick with Arsenal a second because Jules, who is clearly very well connected at Arsenal. Mm -hmm. He had suggested that the goal is for Arsenal to play, for lack of a better word, 4-1-4-1, or or essentially a formation where Odegaard and Havertz are kind of alongside each other. And then you've got the wingers and Jesus, obviously Gabriel Jesus not there and so on. And I I presume Rice would be the holder, right? There's There's no Thomas Partey in this Jules fantasy of Arsenal. And it is reminiscent of what we saw from Pep City a couple of years ago, mm. right? Um, I'm going to just put your take just conceptually. Does that work with this set of players? Because while they're very good, they also seem a bit different to the ones that Pep had when they did it. And it does put a lot of strain on Declan Rice in that position, potentially. Yeah. Especially, and it also means a different role for Zinchenko as well, if, yeah. if he's at left back. Yeah. Um, I don't. But Jules is the Arsenal guy. I'm good, but I'm going <laughs> to. I can't. I mean, I'm, obviously, they didn't play it in this one because there were players missing, and we saw Thomas Partey, who I thought would be leaving starting instead, right? Yeah. I think if they're going to play that, then you're playing Tierney at left back you know? more than Zinchenko yeah, Zinchenko like, plays midfield exactly because otherwise then you would just end up going back to what you had previously which would be someone like Zinchenko coming into midfield and then having the two pivots anyway so I don't I don't know if that necessarily works out in my mind I think 
seeing Havertz and Odegaard as the attacking midfielders, I do like that. Um, he's very much front foot, but you do need an element of security there as well because if Ben White, for example, is going to be pushing up alongside Osaka, if the fullback's doing that as well, and before you know it, there's just one holder and two people back there. And that's a dream come true for a team that's trying to soak up some pressure because then there's just so much space elsewhere to go and do as you please. So I'm not 100% convinced by that and I don't think Arteta would be. I think it's similar to what happened with Man City yesterday. The idea of the two sixes, whether it comes from two actual sixes or it comes from a defender stepping in to create a second six, I think that's key because that's shown like there's a good level of security that you can have. Even in attack, you can be defensively solid as well. So I don't necessarily see that unless they're coming up against a team that really doesn't want to attack at all, in which case then I suppose you could just commit more bodies forward. What do you think? I think it's something to that you can look at against certain types of opponents. Um, I also think, you know, essentially Gabriel Jesus plays centre forward, but is he really a centre forward? Does he occupy certain mm. forward spaces or does he do a different job? So I was a bit surprised when Joel said he would try that. On the other hand, both Jesus and uh, and certainly um, uh, Havertz, they're unorthodox players, right? They're, they're players who, you know, they've been pigeonholed one way or the other. I mean, Jesus more than Havertz, but they have unusual skill sets and you can use them in different way. And I think that's something that, that really excites Arteta. So I think we will we'll see it. Sometimes you move towards that situation organically. If you remember early in the game yesterday, you know, Partey was further back, like Declan Rice was alongside Odegaard and Havertz for, for long stretches. It was almost like you had a line of five, yeah. you know, trying to press while, while City built from deep. So I think we can, we'll see that situation develop organically. Um, I just wonder, and the way, and this is a good transition to our next topic about fixture congestion, I, I don't know how much time managers actually have to go and work on this stuff mm. in preseason. You know, the, the, the Champions League final was, what, less than two months ago, yeah. right? Um, how much time do they actually have? How much time do they then have during the season as well, right? Mm. I, I'm sorry, they, people will say, oh, Gab, you're always saying the same thing. Yeah, because it's always true, right? <laughs> always we, 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 we pay Pep Guardiola or, 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 or whoever you want to name, Klopp, or all this money to say, coach, teach us, lead, lead us, teach these players, right? Mm. And then they don't have any freaking time to do it because... Preseason is the way it is because during the season you can't do any work. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been there yeah. when you had a midweek midweek game. How many proper full training no. sessions do you have? It's one. Not, it's not many. It's not many. Um, well, it's one a week, right? Yeah. Once you factor in right. travel and walkthroughs in the day before, right? You have mm. one one session where you can actually try something new in training. Exactly, and more often than not, when you try something new, it's not great the first time you do it. So right. you need to try it again, or but and if you try it again, it's going to be a week later, right? Yeah, potentially. I, <laughs> I mean, but I think I think for Arteta, for Pep, and so on, some of the things that they try, it's always from the same foundation. I think most of the work needs to be done around building that foundation. But in terms of, say, relationships and some of the wrinkles and stuff like that that could happen, it's no surprise that some of the best football we see from the teams that win the league happens in, later on in the season anyway, when they're more in a groove with it. And it's not to say that they've worked on it more and more in training. 
but there's certain games where they're getting a feel for it. Starts it happens from, organically over the season. Yeah, like with City having a player coming from the back to go into midfield. When Rico Lewis was doing it to start with, it was it was it was all right. Then it started to drift the other way, and it wasn't working. And some people are saying it's a terrible formation. By the end of the season, it's the expected formation for them to go on and potentially and win a treble. You right. know what I mean? People are like us oh, is great. <laughs> Everything's fantastic, and that's the organic development as you've mentioned. But I think Arsenal, they are capable of doing. It. And Jesus and Havertz, yes, they are like. You know, they're, they're different. Whichever way you want to pigeonhole them, they are a bit different. But they're also highly intelligent, they're capable. And most of the other pegs will be into the correct holes around them. So I think they will get a feel for it, get an understanding. And I, th- I think Arsenal will be really good this year. Um, going back to you, uh, to City, Pep said before the game about how the situation is getting worse and worse, too many games, so many players injured in, in, in preseason, heat, humidity. Um, the players are exhausted, they're exhausted mentally. I mean, he laid it on really thick. I can see where he's coming from. Mm-hmm. He says this all the time. And look, there's an easy argument where you say, hey, you want to play less games? Then go to your bosses and say, we'll take less money, right? And play less games. And we'll, the games that we do play, we'll play them better. Uh, you, you, you have the option of doing that, right? It's not realistic. And we're in a situation where actually the guys who play the most games, you know, it's 10, 12 teams. Yeah. Most teams do not play that no. many games in a season. Most teams play between 42 and 44 games, depending how far they get in the clubs, right? Yeah. So let's put that. Yeah. So you have a situation where this is a problem affecting very few teams, yeah. teams that often make the most money and fund the rest of the pyramid. Yeah. So I don't know how you resolve that one. Yeah. But one thing that he can control is adding more players into the mix. And when I look at this and I ask myself, are City going to be better than last season? I mean, Joshua Guardiola is fantastic. Sure. Um, I think, I mean, I think that is a tremendous signing. I'm not 100% on the Kovacic-Gundogan. Yeah, it's not uh, two different players, yeah. It's definitely not like for like. And again, Pep can work with players. He can improve players. Kovacic has started more than 23 league games in a season just once since 2015. You see, you don't need to be telling me stuff like that. I don't know. That's information I didn't need to hear. And that's, you know, assuming he can do what last season's version of Gundogan did, which is not now. Is a big ask because Gundogan was really good last season. Yeah. Once you get past that, you can play John Stones in midfield, as you did with great success last year. But Stones is in midfield, as good he is, he can't also be at the back. Mm. And then you get potentially a little bit stretched there. And then can Calvin Phillips be reclaimed when you're around City? Do people say, oh, he was unlucky with injuries. He had that really, was it in the League Cup? He had a terrible game. Yeah, was, but everyone did that day. Um, is he somebody that you, do you feel like somebody Pep is counting on? I don't think so at this moment in time, because otherwise he would have played in that Community Shield game at some level. But he okay. didn't look like he was going to get any time. All right. Further forward. They've lost a player yep. in Riyad Mahrez mm-hmm. who hasn't been replaced. Uh, now, I would say, well, that's okay. You've got Julian Alvarez. You've got Phil Foden. Now, when I think that, though, Julian Alvarez and Phil Foden, I say, like, oh, who can replace Kevin De Bruyne when he's out? Oh, it's Julian Alvarez and Phil Foden. Who can replace Erling Holland when he's out? It's Julian Alvarez and Phil Foden. Who can replace Grealish? The same two guys. So yeah. you have two guys back in four positions. And then after that, as I mentioned earlier, then you get into Cole Palmer. Mm-hmm. Is he somebody who they're looking at and saying maybe Pepsi like ah, he's 21 now, he can make a big step up 
No, I, I don't think so. Again, he did score a great goal. Yeah, yeah. As it stands, I don't think so. I think he ended up playing maybe like 23, 24 games last season, but he only started like three or four of them. I think outside of those starts, as long as he was getting was maybe 15 minutes. Right. I don't think he's someone that he entirely trusts. So it does feel like they are short. And I think, as is the case with most teams, the move to Saudi Arabia for some players isn't something that was envisioned six months earlier. So it was never part of a plan, but all of a sudden it happens. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to react to it? And I think they, their feeling is that they are short of a forward. But now the balance is, which forward do you bring in? Are you bringing in someone that is more or less a starter, a real elite starter. No, you don't. You bring in a body. Yeah. You do what you did at the back when you brought in Akanji. Akanji was brought in to be a body. So who's the year. body? What? Who's the body? Who's the body as a forward for Man City? Somebody who's already familiar with the system or, or similar to Who the system. Who is who's that? Who's going to come in? I mean, you're putting me on the spot there, but an equivalent of Leandro Trossard, somebody like that. Yeah. Right? That That is somebody who, obviously not Leandro Trossard, but I, I think you can find players like that. And I can I think right now, as we speak, I have a column up on this where he says this very issue. I think Pep's saying, yeah, let's plan an Akanji move. Maybe it's somebody on loan, maybe it's a youngster, mm. maybe it's a veteran who's just who I've worked with before. But there are players out there who fit that bill. And if it is just a body, if it is just a guy who who, you know, plays in the league cup so Kevin De Bruyne doesn't get kicked to pieces, that's fine. If he then has an Akanji type season and like elbows his way to the starting lineup and is one of your best defenders, then that's gravy on top. Yeah. Uh, we talked about fixture congestion and fatigue. You and I talked about this. We were part you of the discussion did, yeah. on FC last <laughs> night. So the Premier League has decided, uh, Howard Webb has has decided in consultation with, with others, including Raphael Varane, who tweeted about this earlier, uh, that, hey, let's be part of the rest of the world unlike perhaps Premier Leagues of the past, and said, we saw this at the World Cup. They're going to add minutes um, for at the end of games for time-wasting, for injuries. It's not going to be like when the ball goes out for a throw-in or so on, excessive goal celebrations, incidents like that, VAR decisions when everybody stands around and looks at the guy with a finger in his ear. Um, and if this means we're going to have 10 minutes of time added on, so be it. Pep's not happy about it. I wouldn't be happy about it if I conceded a goal if, in that well, 10th yeah, minute. That part, yeah. But taking that emotion out of the game, I think you and I might disagree on some I of think, I think I think we do, yeah. I think we do. And the reason I disagree with it, like as a concept or whatever, I think we disagreed about a certain point. Overall, if the game's going to last however long it's going to last, then it is what it is. You know, you, right. you accept it, you deal with it, you, you move on. But there are certain aspects of it because say physical stats and stuff across the years they've not been going down like they've been going up if anything like players are still covering huge distances within games and when there's a potential to add say nine um ten minutes potentially or something like that you know that will weigh into it especially when it's across multiple games and it's also not because the players are fitter and more athletic well, they're being asked to do more per game. Like they're being, they're fitter and they're more athletic. We're kind of going to end up capable at the same point. of doing it. No, because they're being told that they have to, so they're pushing more and more and more. So when people say the ball's out of play for like more time now, well, people are running more in that uh, little amount, well, the less amount of time or whatever we could say. So there is there's something to that. The tempo was slower before, essentially, so it wasn't as taxing. So it's more, yeah, so it's more intense and it's only going to go that way further. I, I think my difficulty with this, Nadim, is right now there are games, right, when the intensity is high everywhere, right, where the ball is in play for 65 minutes, right, and that's very taxing on the players because mm -hmm. they're sprinting for 65 minutes, and where it's in play for 50 minutes. 
and you can say the physical numbers. You'd have to look at the physical number in that yeah. fifty-minute game. The, are the players working less than the sixty-five minute game? Yeah, and I would argue they probably are. And in the time that you're adding on, is time where people generally stand around because they're looking at the VAR or they're watching the substitute trot onto the pitch or their time or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. I think that is the argument, and I think as long as it's done in a way that's clear to understand. Again, if I were Howard Webb, I'd say like you, tell us how did you arrive at ten minutes, right? I mean, you know, there's a bloke on the sideline sitting there uh, adding things up and being like substitution here, goal celebration there, this VAR decision, whatever, this injury, Odegaard sitting on the ground, whatever. Boom. This is how I arrived at 10 minutes. If it's all clear, I don't have an issue about that. And I don't see why the players would suddenly be running more. And you can always adjust that because then you don't take a baseline of 60 minutes. You take a baseline of 58 minutes, Mm -hmm. right? Can we agree on that? Uh, we could we could attempt to. I, I understand the point that you're trying to make, but there's just always just that there's more. There is more to it. And another point: say if Odegaard was down on the floor yesterday for 20 seconds, how long does that, that gets added to the clock really? Well, if he's on the floor for 20 seconds, then you add 20 seconds. But then at the, when stoppage time comes, it's always a whole number. Amazing how it's it's a it's a coincidence. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, but what was so are they going to be taking time off? So if, say if it's the guy looks at his watch and it's like nine minutes and 20 seconds. Do you think he'd be playing nine minutes or 10 minutes? It's a minimum of nine minutes. But then stuff no, happens. No, no, because it says 9.20. You'll probably round it up to 10. We don't know what instructions Howard Webb has given them. Yeah. I, this is why, as long as they're clear on it. Howard Webb is a pretty communicative guy. Yeah. This is a question I would certainly ask him. Dale Johnson, if you're listening, you've got a good relationship with PJ on while. Please uh, find out and explain it to us. Please. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launcher online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million dollar stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify is your no excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash gabjewels, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash g-a-b-j-u-l-s now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash gabjewels. We promised you Jules, and here he is, Nadim, joining us from Australia, uh, where he's covering the Women's World Cup. Uh, Jules, this is where I'm supposed to ask you, like, oh, how you found it? You've been having a good time. But you know what? We're not that kind of show, so we're going to get straight into the football. <laughs> this is what I want to know. The first thing that strikes me, as, as somebody who's watched this World Cup from afar, past World Cups, I can't remember World Cup, where we've had so many big hitters go out early. It was Germany, which I kind of enjoyed. It was Brazil. Uh, it was Italy as well. Maybe not that great, but we did reach the quarterfinals last time. Italy going out. Uh, and then, of course, perhaps the biggest one of all, the United States, of course, beaten on penalties by Sweden and really not playing very well. And just now, even we even had England. 
they they just went through on penalties. They could have easily gone out Nigeria hitting the woodwork three times. I know it's that age-old philosophical question, but it certainly does feel as if the gaps between the haves and the have-nots, at least in terms of resources, uh, have certainly diminished. No, you're right, Gab. It's definitely that. Here, all the games that we've been watching in the stadiums, on television, the people we've been talking to, I was talking to Hervé Renard the other day, the French head coach, and he said he's only been in the, the women's game for four months because before that he'd never experienced with the women's side of the game. And he said, and straight away I could tell that athleticism, in, but also technical ability, that the gap uh, is much closer now between what you would have called before the weakest nations or maybe the nations with the less stars or whether the football is not as, as structured maybe as the other, the other countries. They're there. They're there but, because physically they're stronger, for example, they, because the players have got more experience now. There's more investment in the women's game all around the world. I think FIFA is doing a really good job for that because players are moving around, signing to clubs in Europe, in America, in Mexico, where they can develop their own game. And then obviously then when they come back with the national team, then, and, and, and when, maybe when others like the U.S. are not as prepared because I think they took this World Cup for granted a little bit, then that's, that's why you have the upset that we've seen so far. Now, I agree. It, 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 it's about money said at the last World Cup. And now that the money's a little bit more spread out, other women in other parts of the world are getting, are getting opportunities. Um, you mentioned the United States there. Certainly, that was a massive shock. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought they were really poor in the, uh, in the group games. Again, Sweden, I thought they actually played a lot better. They created a ton of chances. But it, this is football. And they go out on they go out on penalty kicks. Yeah, by a millimeter because that penalty penalty that was saved by Nea and saved, and then the ball spinning in back in the goal uh, for a millimeter. That's what cost them that qualification. Is they haven't played well at all. You're right, but then on their best performance, they still get beaten or get knocked out by a Sweden team. Who knocked them out in the Olympics a year ago, for example, uh, and or two years ago, sorry, and and I think kind of knew how to play them in a way, and yet the US were much stronger, and without an incredible performance by the Swedish goalkeeper, they would have won that game two 0 But I, my point is that you can't switch it on, Gab. They've played poorly the first three games. Your fourth game, you played better, but in front of goals, you haven't had the situations that you had against Sweden because you haven't created them before. You don't have that kind of momentum. You don't have the confidence because your strikers, your forwards haven't played well at all all tournament. It just doesn't come back like this. You know, if you don't play well before, it's hard to then turn it back on and be very efficient, be very fluid and be very clinical. And that's what was lacking at the end of the day. And it cost them massively. It's two tournaments in a row now where, where Vladko and the players don't do well. Well, and, and, and Jules, I, I want to hear you two name like, this is what bugs me about it, because in the women's game, um, they have a lot of struggles. One thing they have an abundance of relative to the men's game is time in the sense that you don't have this massive fixture congestion. So when I see more talented teams playing in this tournament and playing badly and playing badly repeatedly in more than one game, and this applies to England, which we'll get to in a minute as well, I have to point the finger to the coach. And in this case, obviously, it's, it's Flacco and Antonovsky. And I know people said, oh, but, you know, the, uh, there's injuries, players who aren't there, Sauerbrunn, M Macario. Uh, I still expect you to execute because you've had time to prepare. Did, did that not happen here? I mean, for me, it's a humiliation to lose out like that. I mean, 
just for people who maybe don't know, every single World Cup since the, World, the Women's World Cup was created in 2011, the US have gone at least in the semi-final. And, and more often than not, they won it. For them to be knocked out in the last say, 16, even if they played well against Sweden, it's a humiliation. And the football was poor. The amount of 1v1 instead of passing move that we've seen in this tournament is crazy because they had no collective unity. They have no collective patterns. There was no patterns of play. There was nothing collectively in that team. And I, and I do think they took it for granted. They thought, oh, we're going to go there and we're going to walk here like we used to, like we have done before. That's not the case. To see Megan Rapino, the way she did against Sweden, being terrible, then missing a penalty, terrible penalty. Then she was laughing, going back to the, toward the halfway line. I just thought the attitude was wrong. And, and I just think this was not a team. And when you're not playing as a team, even if you have very good individuals, Sometimes it's not enough, and clearly for them it was not enough in this World Cup. Uh, Nathan, we nearly had another shock in a game that that just finished. Uh, uh, U.S. the number one team in the world, England the number uh, two team in the world. They nearly got knocked out by Nigeria on penalties. I don't think I'm outing anybody here to say that you've got uh, you've got loyalties to both Nigeria and England, but you were supporting. Uh, the Falcons in this game, not the Eagles, the Falcons. The women's team is the Falcons. Yeah. Nigeria hit the woodwork three times. Uh, Lauren James got herself stupidly sent off late, but uh, that didn't impact the fact that for much of the game, Nigeria looked like they could eat, they could be the ones to win it. Yeah, that's, that's that is right. I think England they look good in their third group game, but the first two you can see that wasn't the same England that won the European Championship a year earlier. And then there's the matchup against Nigeria. You can see some of those individual battles which they would have won easily against some other teams. It wasn't really happening for them today. And I think that some of that frustration probably explains why Lauren James just lost her mind and made such a ridiculous decision stamping on the player in the way that she did. Luckily for her, it didn't really cost her team, but it's cost her a place in this tournament because I don't think you should be seeing her again within it. But Nigeria, they played well. They just couldn't really get it over the line. And some of those penalties to start with, their first two penalties were... If they, if they yeah. are, in theory, your two first best penalty takers, it kind of sets the tone for what could be a disastrous penalty shootout. But it's a shame for them. England do roll on. But as you've said before, it's unconvincing by a lot of teams. Maybe some of it's to do with, say, the where they are, how far away they are, when you need to have the right sort of group balance. Because you're going to be away for a long time. going to be a long way from, away from home. Condition going to be different to what you've, um, what you've experienced. And playing against teams on a world stage, it's different to like Europeans when you're so used to them. New threats, players which you don't play against all the time. We can see some teams are really struggling. But to, I don't want to be that guy. But the USA, obviously them getting knocked out is a big shock. But also... I think Sweden were actually the second highest ranked team that were left in the tournament before um, England were playing today. So the USA are having their best game against the best team that they could play in theory. Okay, okay, you FIFA know. rankings, man. Yeah, um, I've got to be that guy. I've got to be that guy. Because right. it's not it's not all doom and gloom, but it, it certainly is. It does feel like a bit of a disaster. Uh, shout out to Spain, Holland, Japan, my girls who are all through, as well, of course, as Sweden and England. All right, Jules, you know what's coming. So if Vladko Andonovsky has to go for this humiliation where with all this talent, yeah. the team plays badly and goes out on yeah, penalties in the round of 16. Yeah. Yeah. What about Serena Wegman? Because this team also played really badly in the first two games. And actually, arguably, not even arguably, I think it's indisputable. They played worse relative to Nigeria than the U.S. played relative to Sweden. And in the end, yeah. they go through on penalties. Should Serena Wegman go too? But they've qualified. So. Oh, so that changes everything, yeah? It does. 
come on, guys. This is a this is a result business. You know, you you can play badly now and no. in the quarterfinal and semifinal final and win the final, be a world champion. So you won't get psyched. And she won the Euros a year ago. This again, Vladko had two competitions to to get it right, especially for this one. And in both occasions, they played terribly. And probably more talent in this U.S. squad. I know they've got injuries. England have got injuries as well. Uh, then, then England have. I think. I think. I'm not a big Begman fan, to be fair. I, I, I thought that at the Euros, she was the, the team was carried by the incredible atmosphere around the fact that it was in England. They have some very talented players, very important, charismatic leaders in that team, and I think that's more than her ta- her own tactics. That's what took that team all the way to the top, and deservedly so. They were the best. The, they were the best team in that tournament, uh, and 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 now maybe you see the the real. Bigman in a way, because I think she's struggling tactically and what to do, even in her own substitutions. So let's see what happens in the pool final, whether they play against Colombia or Jamaica. Uh, and then we will know a bit more. But as long as you win, it's hard for your, the people above you to sack you, to be fair. No, but maybe you, you draw conclusions in the tournament. And it'll be interesting to see how they can turn it around, because the way um, the way Andonovsky played, again, the way U.S. played against Sweden, was a much better performance. You could see, we've seen it before in, in men's tournaments and women's tournaments, uh, teams stink it up in the group stage and then play better and get better as the tournament progressive. And nobody remembers how terrible they were mm. in the group stage. Because I'm old, I remember the first World Cup that my country won in my lifetime. I thought you were going to say the actually first won World two Cup in my ever. lifetime. Um, uh, sorry, Jules. Uh, <laughs> And Italy were terrible in 1982 in the group stage. I know, very relevant today. And then they go on and they beat Brazil and Argentina and Germany, you know, these big teams. And, you know, nobody remembers how crappy the group stage was. So it could have gone that way. But on Andonovsky, you were a little more charitable when we were talking off air about the job he's done and some of the challenges in coaching the U.S. women's national team, which are maybe different from coaching one of the big European teams. Yeah, that's right. So when I was in the USA playing, you could see that there was a divide between, say, some of the women that played for the national team that didn't really play for their clubs and some that were trying to play for their clubs to get into the national team. And it almost felt like the club was the national team. And by all accounts, I think he's tried to change some of that across the years. Can can I jump in and give a perfect example of that? Go for it. Which I thought was so freaking weird. I know MLS does this too, but with MLS, there's no real risk of the US winning the national team uh, World Cup for a while. So they they win the World Cup in France in 2019. NWSL still going on. Still going on now. After it's still going on now, you're doing the World Cup normal. After the World Cup, they decide to go and go on a victory tour. tour, All these women who have contracts with the NWSL, they go off on a on a victory tour, which is, you know, is what it is. Football wise probably means nothing, but it's a chance we I don't have a problem with that. But what what does it say about your team? What does it say about the women who are playing in NWSL week in, week out? Like well, I didn't get, I didn't understand that. I mean, is this the kind of stuff you're talking about? Yeah, so I was actually in the USA in 2019 when that World Cup was happening. And you could see at this point, there were some, the way that some of the women perceived club football versus the way that others didn't, if you know what I mean. Like after that World Cup, or during the World Cup, Australia, for example, were knocked out on like the Saturday. And then on the Wednesday, Sam Kerr was playing for Chicago. She came straight back from France to play in that game. Bang! This was straight in the next available game. Sam Kerr is Australian. For those who don't follow, yeah, sorry, my, my fault. Yeah, and that could have happened. 
but then there were other people, say you play for the national team, you didn't really have an interest in doing that. And obviously winning a World Cup is a huge thing. I can't tell you what that must feel like because I don't have a clue, like 99% of the population, if not more. But <laughs> they didn't seem like there was a desire or a drive to get to the NWSL. And in the USA, in my opinion, there's a big divide between people who watch the national team and people who watch women's soccer domestically. And I think some of the apathy from some of the players towards that is one of the reasons for it. Because uh, oh, it's a league game, maybe I'll play. And Andonovsky, in fairness to him, was trying to change that. He was trying to say he wants players to be playing week in, week out so that they can be selected to be part of the first pool, small pool, big pool, whatever. But because the things haven't gone that well on the field, I could see the potential for some of his methods and stuff being changed going forward. But I think it, like, you've got to earn the right to be in that national team, whereas I think for a spell, depending on what your name was, you were just in a national right. team. You didn't need to do anything domestically. It didn't matter at all, did it? Well, and, and looking at some of the older players who were in the mix, um, I wonder if that was the case to some degree this time around. Uh, Jules, I, I want to chuck it back to, to to some of these round of 16 games that, that we saw. Um, starting with Spain and Switzerland, I, I, I thought Spain showed bounce back ability. I thought that was impressive in the past. We've seen them, we've seen them crumb, uh, crumble after, after what happened in the group stage. And... Switzerland, I've got so accustomed men's or women's, they suck the life out of the out of the game and stuff and get results. But there's just too much quality on this Spanish team. I mean, yeah. are they the most technically gifted team in this World Cup? Yeah, without that, even when Putellas is on the bench, like like Vilda did, and he made some big calls. To be fair, big changes for someone like him, already under pressure. We're not going to go back on all the uh, the big argument between him and some of the players. Some of them, by the way, who are not even in the squads because they are against him and a war with him but he changed things and it worked and I think when you've got Aitana in that kind of form she's the best player in the world or, or one of the best three players in the world really and the goal that she scored especially the second one is just absolute beauty so Spain you know West, I mean if you score earlier against Switzerland this is it they, the only game plan is to defend for as long as they can and try to disturb your game if you score early the game is over and that's what we saw even if then they got lucky with the, uh, the incredible own goal that um, Colina scored for them. But, but yeah, they were just spending far too good for them. And, and they, they are my favourite with France to go all the way now. Uh, Holland and, uh, and, and South Africa, uh, I, I was told before the tournament that by people, people who know that, you know, Holland were actually, if it was one big team that was going to be upset or, or screwed up in this group stage, it's going to be Holland that they had issues going into the tournament. Um, instead, while not being great, obviously they did fine against, uh, against the U.S., could have maybe even had more in that game. Um, and they're here, even though it was far from straightforward against South Africa, but they, yeah. they're in the quarterfinals. Yeah, they are. My only question mark I have, and they've got players missing, of course, with me, is not there, like a lot of other big teams. My only question mark is, can they, can they really step up once the opposition... And this is no offence to South Africa, who are a good team, they're African champions, they have really good players. But, I mean, like a, like a top, top, one of the other favourites. Can, can the Dutch really step up and, and, you know, rise their game, rise to the occasion, play better. I'm not, sh I'm not sure they can. I think they've got a lot of talent. I'm not, I'm not sure they are, can, they are at that kind of level. So we will see, to start with, against Spain, what, you know, what will happen. But I just have that kind of feeling, skepticism, that they're not going to be able to, to really 
step up their game and be able to compete with a team like Spain. All right, we've heard so much about divisions in the Norwegian camp and blah, 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 and Ada Hagerberg and Caroline Graham Hansen and so on. I, I don't want to use the cliche that but yeah, maybe I will. Like you have a bunch of talented individuals against what is like a really, really well-drilled team, which also has some good individuals, but above all, has a ton of work rate, a ton of unity. There's patterns of play that we saw, that we talked about, that were lacking from England and the U.S., maybe because they have more individuals. I don't know. They're all there with Japan. I, I, I was really, really impressed. Yeah, they're a wonderful team to watch. We saw the demonstration against Spain, of course, and that was, a, that was just a game plan executed. And I don't know if they can do it again against a similar team or even against the same team later down in the tournament. But I think they've got plan A when they have to play against a team like that. They can play on the counter and so good, so good at it. They can have a plan B and play and keeping more of the ball and having those patterns of play gap that you just mentioned. They're very good at it. I think they can do it all. And for me, they're the fittest team in the competition. Not, not in terms of athleticism. They are you know, taller players than them and stronger players than them. But in terms of the runnings and the repetition of sprinting and all of that, they're there. Their counter-pressing is amazing. We've got some good stats here. One of the really good stats, I think, that, that even television is given is how many seconds does, how many seconds, sorry, do teams need to recover the ball? So some of the, you know, worst team, let's put it that way, they take 25 seconds, 30 seconds sometimes to just touch the ball at some point. Jap Japan have been the quickest. And, and against Spain was a bit different because they were leaving them the ball. But apart from that, the pressing and counter-pressing has been super efficient. So really impressed by them. The only thing I think that can go against them is now to be the favorite because here in Australia, everybody's talking about them. Oh, Japan is so good. They're going to win it now. They, they, they are the best team. Nobody can beat them, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not sure how they can deal with that huge tag of being the favorite now. Well, they've, they've obviously done it before, though. There was some years ago. Uh, Sweden, I'll start with you, Nadim. Uh, <laughs> because, again, I thought they got outplayed by the U.S. I'm sure it wasn't part of the game plan to concede all those chances. I mean, another team that's had ups and downs in this tournament, although, as you correctly pointed out, they, they were the highest-ranked team uh, left in the tournament, right? Behind, behind the USA, yeah. Behind the U.S.? You see them coming together? No, I don't, to be honest. Um, considering how high their ranking was, that performance itself would be an alarming one if you were to just look at it just in a vacuum as such. But because you win, it's results-driven business. It's like, oh, you know, they beat the USA. But it didn't even feel like a fair fight overall. No. You know, they were dominated. It felt like in possession with the chances. And, you know, when your goalkeeper has the best game, and that's the real thing to celebrate afterwards. It's not a great position to be in. There was even good fortune in the fact that, say, USA were in such a commanding position with the penalty kicks and the shootout, then all of a sudden they're out. So you'll take that. Maybe you'll take some confidence from it. But from a footballing perspective, I didn't see that much yesterday that made me think, tell you what, they're going to go far in the tournament. But, you know, they've shown some grit and you can take confidence from grit. But how long does that last for? George, are you on board with that Sweden assessment? Yeah. Fridolina Rolfo's not going to suddenly carry this team on her shoulders? No, no, I, th I think they've got really good players back. Tennis is good, you know, Aslani, of course. I just, I was very disappointed by the performance against the US and Miss, maybe because they wanted to do it differently against the US. Maybe they had a different approach. Maybe there's things that we don't know that they put together in place, but I expected more from them and not to see it against a, a US team that was struggling before, to be honest. 
I just cannot see how they can get it right then against Japan. But again, maybe they will defend in the same way. They get lucky. Muzovic is going to have another great game. For someone who is a, a Serb in that club at Chelsea, to then come out here in the World Cup and be that good is just incredible in a game like that. So if she can do it again, of course, then they have a chance. But I just, I just think Japan are going to be too good. All right, we talked about England a little bit before. They're the other team that's uh, already qualified as we record this. But uh, I just want to get from both of you a view on, on Lauren James because, I mean, on social media, people are saying, oh, look, England, round of 16, player gets stupidly sent off. And obviously, mm-hmm. they referenced David Beckham in 1998 and, and Wayne Rooney against Portugal, remember, with the... Uh, oh, I remember. With the winking? Yep. Um, the wink. So, obviously... It was handled a bit differently. Beckham, of course, got uh, he got absolutely uh, hammered by the media, by fans, by whatever else. There was a certain narrative that went in there. And Beckham, by the way, as we established, was 22 years old at the time. So he's a year older than Lauren James. It's not like, you know, oh, a senior player doing this. Yeah. Um, Rooney got a bit of a pass because it was open season on the evil Cristiano Ronaldo yep. and, and whatever. How do you handle like as, as a? I want to start with you, Lauren. Uh, with Lauren, sorry, huh? sorry. <laughs> damn. <laughs> you were looking a bit feminine. There's nothing wrong being in touch with the feminine side. No. Um, how do you, as a teammate, right? When you're, you, I don't know if you've had teammates who've done things like that and gotten themselves sent off. How do you process it afterwards? You expect them to come and apologize straight away? Is this what a coach would expect? I think it depends on the coach within the dressing room. Uh, or within the locker room or whatever. Like if the coach comes in, for example, and, and lays into Lauren, that's the tone, you know what I mean? Because she she should know better. You know, she's young, yes. But you're talking about incidents that have happened in the past. We've all watched the game. Cup players these days have a, in my opinion, have a greater understanding of the game at a younger age than say I would have done when I was younger. She's also the daughter of a coach. She's somebody yeah. who's grown up in who football. Who has a brother who's playing for right. Chelsea. You know, like you're involved in this. Yeah. You see it, you're surrounded by experienced players. And you can be sent off in a game, but not like that. You know what I mean? Like that's, it's ridiculous. It's dirty. Especially when you think about how your team wasn't having the best of days anyway. Like, what, what are you trying to gain from doing that? So I think, as I say, if the coach comes in and sets the tone and really lays into her, then that is it. You as a player, you want to see what she's going to say. Is she going to be apologetic? If she's apologetic and, you know, deeply sorry for what she's done, then, you know, you rally around them. But if I would personally hate it if someone came and put their arm around her, and said it's okay, everything will be okay because you're in. You've gone to Australia right. to win the tournament, and somebody's done something which they didn't need to do, which could have affected it, and now affects the team going forward. Because she started every game so far, so somebody is being trusted to start, but then you do that within the game. Like I, I personally wouldn't be happy. I try and figure out well, like why they did it, what was the reasoning for it, and if there's no sense of like um, sadness or sorrow coming from her, like I'd, I'll be honest, I'd be furious. That goes beyond whether it's just her or that's just anybody at all. Yeah, Jules, uh, what's your take here? Because I'm just wondering, certainly the coach's reaction is going to matter. I would assume some of the some of her veteran teammates, obviously Leah Williamson, not there, but you've got Lucy Bronze, you've got you've got other experienced players. I, I, how do they handle this? Yeah, Emily Bright, of course, who plays with the captain, who plays with uh, Chelsea as well. I think it's unacceptable. I I think. I th- there's still a Dave Johnson, who you know is our ESPN kind of referee rules guy, was telling us in the the World Cup group, um, WhatsApp group that we have that 
it could be a three match ban, but it would be a it would be a one match ban straight away. And then FIFA are going to look into it to see if they extend it to three. It's very likely that it's going to be three, but he was saying that there's a chance that it might not be three games. If it's three, obviously her World Cup is over. If it's less than that, then she might be okay for a final for for, for But let's say even if it's just a one match ban. For me, she can't start again in this tournament. Certainly not in the next game, because there's, there's, there should be a punishment. The one game ban is a punishment, of course. But from Bigman and from the team, from the setup, this is not acceptable because it could have cost you your place. You know, your your World Cup. Now they got they they got through. Okay, and it's, I'm sure it's a big relief for the team and for for Owen James herself. But you can't do that. Certainly not at that level, at any level. But you just can't do... And Adam is right. You can be sent off. A lot of people have been sent off so many, many times. But not for something like that. Not again on this stage. And so for me, uh, I let's see what the suspension is from, from FIFA for the red cards. And then let's see what England do if it's not a three-match man. Yeah, this is going to speak a lot to team dynamics, um, what's inside the dressing room. Also, if England advance past the next round, it might also speak to what condition the other strikers are in, right? Because if Alessia Russo falls down the stairs and the other girl you know, gets the flu, that might also change the dynamic because you can say, oh, yes, we need to punish Lauren James, but do you then want to punish the rest of the players on the team who've worked so hard to get there? Uh, time will tell. And, okay, again, for people, we haven't gone to Australia, Denmark, and France, Morocco because they haven't played yet. We will cover them on Thursday. Jules, thanks so much. See you soon. But not too Thank soon because you, you want France to advance to the final, yeah? <laughs> exactly. Winning it. We'll bring the trophy back. You know, No, no, we'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. <laughs> We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com gab. Just go to Indeed.com gab. Gab right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Gab. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, enough Women's World Cup. How about some quick hits instead? Let's go, let's go. Tottenham Hotspur boss Ange Postacoglu had some harsh words for Bayern as the Harry Kane saga rumbles on. Nadim, so much for those deadlines, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the deadline! Yeah, listen, (laughs) if you want to get something done, you'll get it done however long it takes, however long it needs to be done. I think to have a deadline that's, you know, still a long time before the end of the transfer window, I'm not really a believer in that. does it matter that, unlike two years ago, Harry Kane's been, you know, with the, when the City thing was going on, Harry mm. Kane's been totally silent here? He would, do you know what? Two years ago, he said something a little bit, but then walked it back very quickly. Yeah, and then was late returning to training and stuff. But then next thing, he was just back in training. He was late to training for maybe like one day. So I don't think the statement he made back then was hardly strong. And this is just... I, I, I think he's piecing out. I think he's thinking, this is a win-win. 
right? Either Levy gets a ton of money and Spurs get a ton of money for me and I'll make a ton of money at Bayern, or I have a great season at Spurs. I still have the option. Maybe we'll be really good and maybe I'll extend my contract and they'll pay me a ton of money. Or maybe I walk away in 12 months time as a free agent and I, I can pick whatever team I want to join. Harry Kane, I think he's one of the players in the best situation, all of the Premier League, arguably world football, because he doesn't need to say anything and people will defend him and say whatever he's going to do is the right decision. Because he's a generally likable guy. Did you, yeah, yeah. Uh, PSG are back in training, but Kylian Mbappe is off working with the unwanted players. Gab, how is this going to end? Um, I, I think given how Paris Saint-Germain were so hard on him, um, like there was no I mean, last time when his contract was expiring remember they weren't saying anything and in the end like he surprised everybody by, by signing a contract man. here they're not even doing that there were suggestions that they said oh why don't you extend your contract and we'll have some sort of guaranteed sale clause in the summer whatever that means I think he's just sitting tight I think it's going to end with him at Real Madrid um, Real Madrid I think they're not sweating this if it's next summer on a free great if it's this summer we'll leave a spot a little spot open because we only have three forwards three senior forwards on a forward and a roster rodrigo vinicius and joselu so there's room for you killian but either way we're not fussed i think it's it's, a, it's i think he's they're both mbappe and ramadan in a strong position it's psg who are you know up the creek mm. Sticking with Paris Saint-Germain, Nadim, they've added Gonzalo Ramos, or close doing, and they've triggered uh, Dembele's release clause. A Neymar Ramos Dembele front line sounds pretty darn good to me, no? Is that is that tongue in cheek or is that like a real pretty darn good to you? Well, okay. A Neymar Ramos Dembele front line where they're all fit and working and Luis Enrique is working his magic. Okay, it's not Manchester City, but it's pretty darn good, yeah? <laughs> Yeah, it is. No, you know, no, it is. No, no, no. Listen, listen. I am absolutely not a hater. But say those three names compared to at the very start when you saw like Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe as a front three. You know, it does feel a bit different. But I think they can be successful as long as they're all I'll available. You. you know, as long as like compared to three, I think as long as they're all available and you know you can have a manager in charge that is actually in charge, then yeah, I think I think they can they can do a good job. Um, back to Dembele Gab. He only extended his contract with Barcelona last summer. How big a blow is this for Xavi? I, I think it's a blow that he saw happening. Xavi's not stupid. And so he was a free agent. Obviously, when you, when you extend your contract and take a pay cut, which he effectively did, and you only signed for two years, uh, which he did, it's obvious something's afoot. You're going to put a favorable clause, and that's what he did. So I think Xavi's prepared for it. I, th I think Xavi knew something like this was likely to happen, and I think they're okay. Rasmus Hoyland is officially a Manchester United player, made him 75 million, rising to 85 million euros from Atalanta. Sounds like a ton of money for a guy who's 20 years old and scored all of nine league goals last season. Yeah, I don't think nine goals this season is going to do it for Man United from a sort of excitement perspective. I think given the conversation they've had about new ownership groups and how well they did in winning something last year, I don't think you can afford to bring in a player that's part of a project, in my opinion. I think he has to hit the ground running. Everyone sees Man United. He has to do well. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I think it's more important that you get this right for his long-term development. I mean, you want to learn lessons from what happened with Anthony Marcia, who also came over very young and learned a lesson. I'd have no problem with them bringing in another striker, maybe even somebody on loan, to take some of the pressure off uh, off him up front, just so, so he can grow. Sounds like you're talking about Valt Veghorst. Uh, Juventus are <laughs> increasingly confident that they'll be able to swap Dusan Vlavic for Romelu Lukaku plus 40 million euros. But Gab, this whole affair seems a bit odd to me. 
everything is odd about this, about how like uh, we haven't heard from Lukaku yet, about how he just stopped answering his phone, calling calls from Inter, phone calls from Rock Nation, his agents. Uh, Juve fans not happy about this. Uh, it seems to be Max Allegri seems to be the only person who wants this to happen, who wants Lukaku uh, to come on board. For Chelsea, Flavich, rough season last year, but there's a great player in there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sticking with Chelsea, Moises Caicedo missed Brighton's game against uh, Rayo Vallecano, the mighty Rayo Vallecano to you, <laughs> and uh, remains a major target in midfield. But um, some are suggesting that maybe Tyler Adams at 20 million is a cheap and cheerful alternative if they can't get Caicedo. It's what a world we live in whereby 20 million is, 20 million is now cheap. <laughs> it's a cheap alternative. I understand where people are coming from. I think Adams in the Premier League hasn't really done well enough to get people excited as such even though I think he can do a good job for Chelsea and the Caicedo one feel like it's been going on for so long that that's that's the bar that's the standard if they don't get that across the line then bringing Adams I don't think we have to bring somebody in right they 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 need they need a defensive midfielder right Adams can do the job maybe Adams surrounded by better players and not having three managers in one season although mind you that was Chelsea last year uh in certain situations, maybe that can that can do the trick. They, they need another body in there. And mm-hmm. uh, for me, look, I really I love Caicedo, but if he's going to cost a hundred million, if he means giving up Levi Colwell, I you yeah, don't, you do don't want to do that. No. You don't do it. You, you don't want to do that. But then also, you can picture the headline: it's like Tyler Adams signs for Chelsea for twenty million pounds and signs nine year deal. Doesn't necessarily yeah, fill you maybe with. You leave out the nine year deal. Yeah, yeah, but that seems to be the standard now. But um, Mickey Van der Ven. He's uh, on the verge of signing for Tottenham from Wolfsburg in a forty million pound move. Gab, what are your thoughts? Um, I think it's, it goes up to forty million. I think there's bonuses. I think it's and that was euros. I think it's actually a little bit less. Um, although, mind you, I wrote the script, so I don't mind uh, listen, me. you lead the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think it gives you a hint of what of the kind of players that, that he wants at the back. I, I think he's identified that obviously as an area where, where, where they need to improve. He's 22, he's right age, right profile. Hmm. Mosala's agent, uh, Rami Abbas, says he turned down offers from El Itihad, uh, adding that if he wanted to move, he wouldn't have signed a new deal last year. Good news for Liverpool, right? By the, and also, by the way, very grown up, because Sadio Mane signed a new deal with Bayern last year, and he, did it. he ended up moving, so... Yeah, um, I think I'd be more interested to see people signing new deals this summer or this year, given the fact that like the Saudi Pro League is now a bigger part of the conversation, whereas a year ago, I don't think it was, you know. Uh, but it does sound like it's good news for Liverpool. He's very much part of that culture. But yeah, I'm not- You do wonder, though, is there a number at which Jurgen Klopp says, yeah, I'm all, I'm all, I love you, but... Because everyone you look has at, a number. What? Everyone has a number. Well, I'm looking. I mean, Luis Diaz, Jota, um, Darwin, Darwin Gakpo. Yeah, Gakpo. I mean, they have numbers there, right? And he is a year older, and everyone's he is the highest number. earner, right? Everyone's got a number. Everyone has a number, whether it's players or whether it's even clubs thinking this is the value yeah. of said individual. If that number dropped, 
I think it's going to be hard for any team to say no. No, and, and I, but I also think Salah personally feels, you know what, Saudi will still be there next year or the year after that. That's and I can neither confirm nor deny that. I totally agree with you. Um, Inter finally have their goalkeeper, and it's Jan Sommer. Gab does, Gab, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense because obviously, you know, they reached the Champions League final last year. They want to be competitive. He's obviously not a long-term signing or something who's going to resell value, but I thought he, he did fine uh, when, when he went to Bayern. Uh, he's not costing you a lot of money. He's 34 or something like that. Um, he'll be good for a couple seasons, and, and, and that's fine. Uh, Jean-Felix has been linked with a move to uh, Al-Hilal. Nadim, uh, this feels inevitable to me that he will not be an Atletico Madrid player next year. Yeah, I think the Atletico Madrid part is definitely true. Um, you know, if you say you want to move to Barca whilst you're at a club, it's probably not best to say at Atleti. <laughs> but yeah, he definitely needs to go somewhere. The Al Hilal part of it, I don't know. I've not. I've, how many clubs has he been linked with? You know, I'm not. I'm not sure. It'd be a shame if he feels like that's his only option at this time. But sometimes if you make your bed, this is the way it's going to be. What do you think? Uh, you know, when he came over, I, notwithstanding he got sent off in his first game for Chelsea, there's a lot of people where he said, look, he looks so good. He looks so good. I think he did show flashes. There's flashes in there. I think a lot of people in the game have decided that for all his ability, whether it's attitude, personality, whatever, uh, he's not able to show it consistently. Hmm. Um, and, you know, they showcased him at in the Premier League at Chelsea, and Chelsea didn't want to keep him. Hmm. So for me, and it's too easy now saying, oh, well, he's George Mendes guy, just send him to Wolves. Uh, no, I think that ship has probably sailed at this stage too. So uh, I, I don't know. I think it would be a mistake for him. I, I think he I think he needs to take a step back. I think Mendes needs to advise him and say, you know what? If we have to take less money, let's take less money. You're still young enough. Was he 24 or something hmm. like that? You're still young enough. You have a career about you. You've got more ability than all but maybe 10, 15 players in the world. Let's get you the best environment for you to show it. And it's not going to be Chelsea with three different players. It's not going to be Al Tihad where nobody sees you. Um, just go to where you're comfortable. And it's obviously not Atletico Madrid. Mm. Gianluca Scamacca is on his way back to Serie A, Gab. Are you surprised that it worked out for him in England? Not really in the sense that he had injuries. I think, you know, West Ham, they were set up to play a certain way. I don't think he played particularly well when he did play. I'm not sure, you know, he in the Premier League, he can't make his physicality count the way he does in, in Serie A. Um, I think all those things combined against him. I think it's a good fee for West Ham, 25 million um, plus 5 million in bonuses, plus 10% of a sell-on. You're in a situation where, you know, he will be, He's likely to be sold on. I don't think he's going to spend the rest of his career at Atalanta. So you'll get a chunk of that. You don't get all your money back, but you get a fair amount of your, of your money back. And and it's good for him. And, you know, as one of the few able-bodied Italian center forwards around, I obviously want to see him do well. How how are West Ham going to get part of a sell-on? That, that doesn't feel normal to me. Or is it normal? Why? Just because I feel like you get that with, say, like an academy product or something like that. Like, how do you get that clause whereby another team is going to have to pay you for a play which you only had for a year anyway? You can make any whatever private agreement, whatever private agreement you want to make, right? Um, is it is it common? It's uh, it's increasingly common when players move to clubs where you know that they're kind of stepping stone clubs, right? So you're not going to get a sell on but if you saw somebody the perspective of a player that's not come from their academy. You know, you didn't make this player. So how are you going to make money on the player who failed where you were? But I think it's the only way for West Ham to get their money back, right? It's, it's like the bonuses, right? The 25 million rising to 30 million. People have put that in 
because you don't know what's going to happen, right? And you want to you want to get a chunk of the upside. Okay. Um, I think it started. It was more common elsewhere, but I think seven, eight, ten years ago, we started seeing um, a lot of this. Some of it super complicated uh, sell-on uh, and, and bonus structures. But I think in, in Skamaka's case, you know, I, West Ham want to make sure that, you know, if he turns out to be the next Italian Erling Holland, that, you know, they get they get a chunk of it because they invested 40 million or whatever it was in him last summer. Yeah. New rules in England mean that managers who get sent off aren't allowed to speak to the media afterwards. So when West Brom played Hull City on Friday night, a game I did not watch, but I read about, <laughs> both Carlos Corberan and, and forgive me, I forget which is the dad and which is the son. Is it Leroy Rosinho? Leroy is the dad. Okay, Leroy's so presumably he's the manager, right? Uh, Leroy, yeah. yeah. Uh, they were both sent off. Neither was allowed to speak to the media after the game. Nadim, this makes no sense to me. Does it make any sense to you? No, it makes no sense whatsoever because most managers and players don't want to speak to the media. If you could get <laughs> if you could get yourself sent off and like stoppage time at the end of a game just so you don't have to discuss it, like sure that's the best case scenario. Yeah, I don't know what they're going for with that rule. I I, I'm guessing that maybe if a manager gets sent off and he's still angry, then you put a microphone in front of them, he'll say horrible things. But you know. Uh, equally, I think it's also taking a sense of responsibility, right? You got sent off. You get sent off for a reason. Give me your side of the story. Show me that you're an adult, that you're not going yeah, to say the referees the spawn of the devil. Yeah. yeah, you should have to. Yeah, that, the point is you have to answer more questions. You have to be out there and go directly and be seen. Yeah, yeah. I think they, they make it seem as if it's a punishment for the managers. <laughs> I don't think they care. <laughs> I don't think the managers will be saying too much about that because they'll be quite comfortable about making <laughs> exactly. sure that they don't have to speak to press afterwards. It's been a rough preseason for Laurent Blanc and Leon Gap. Uh, that's right. Uh, Lauren Blanc, of course, is the manager uh, of, of Leon, owned by uh, John Texter, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite uh, owners for quick hits purposes. You remember the uh, phantom offer for Christian Pulisic. Um, basically, they, they, they've lost some friendly matches. They've, they've been unhappy with some of the transfer dealings. And he came out and he said, oh, gee. Well, who knows if I'll be in charge for the first game of the season. Like, this is exactly what you want to hear from, from your manager. And look, Laurent Blanc, he's got his own languid ways. But the man is an institution in France. He is the World Cup winning captain. He's been a successful manager of, of, of Paris Saint-Germain, what, what, four leagues in a row and so on. And, you know, he's got his quirks. And for him to come out like that, could you possibly create a worse vibe mm. around the team? And again... Not saying it's Texter's fault. And John, if you want to come on the show, you're welcome anytime. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was funny and in character. Leo Bonucci is unwanted by Juventus. Yes, right. He's got a year left. He's on the naughty steps, training with the players who are waiting for transfers. Um, he's been linked with a move to Ajax, which I find weird. But if you want a life experience, I suppose, you can hang out with the other old guy, um, Daily Blind. Uh, I have no idea how legit this rumor is, but I am fascinated by the idea in principle, right? So it's Ajax, it's Highline, kind of what we call in Italy, happy defending versus the guy who is the godfather or one of the godfathers of proper old school defending. As a defender yourself, you get an older teammate in, a guy who's won the Euros, super successful. Does that work? Do you want to learn from him? Or are you like, what was this old guy doing here? Um, I think you could learn from his adaptability. 
if he comes in and the manager says this is how it's going to be I imagine across the years of him being so successful he's been very good at taking on instruction so he could very quickly not so much in the Maurizio Sarri Andrea Pirlo years but yeah let's not worry about that too much (laughs) but yeah taking on instruction and you know just being a very good good pro good player all that stuff that could make a difference but I don't know if I'm missing the point here but uh, Daily Blind the Blind's not like Ajax royalty yeah so they can be old and play for Ajax how many older players are trying to make their way to Eredivisie it feels a little bit off to me if I think of clubs that would be interested in him I would not be thinking Ajax so what's real there I, 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 I mean, again, I don't know about the link. It was more like the concept. It's more the, you know, yeah. not, like why don't you did not have a good season last year? He's got a year left on his contract. He makes a ton of money. Juve have to necessarily make cutbacks. So they said, Leo, go get yourself another club. And you know, for now, he's weighing things up. I'm sure they'll let him go uh, on a free transfer. Um, maybe assuming he doesn't go to Saudi. Having seen what his buddy Giorgio Chiellini got up to in MLS, I don't think he's very excited to go to MLS either. But maybe the idea of playing for a team, maybe in Europe, where I, I think it's important that he had the system that also works because what we saw a lot of Bonucci, he says, like, I want to be on a team that plays in the back where I, as a center back, can go and, you know, yeah. make the fact that I'm really a really good passer count. And I don't necessarily want to play for a team with a, with a super high line where I got to go and chug back towards my own goal. Yeah, yeah. But that, that doesn't happen. Do people actually help younger players? Have you seen it happen? Yeah, I've seen I've seen some do that. But it depends how that senior player is doing themselves. If the senior I mean, player is just about treading water, he's not really going to be trying to help anybody else out as well. Like when you came in the first team, did you look at Richard Dunn and be like, whoa, like, or is he before your turn? No, he was, no, Richard Dunn was my captain when he okay, first came. It was him and Sylvain Distan, and they did help a lot. Sylvain then, Distan, who played on forever, right? Yeah, but then there are also some senior players who see you and do not want to help you at all because you're not going to affect their job. And they've got like families and kids that they want to keep in school in certain <laughs> areas. So they leave you kind of on an island. But yeah, I think footballing-wise, going to Area Divisi, football is the principle you know some of the defensive side of things it might be different but it's a new adventure and if you can take something new in old age that's not you know in, in front of like a thousand people then yeah why not why not right, go i have it? to ask about richard dunn i'm thinking more about young richard dunn rather than older richard dunn okay did you ever think somebody that big could move that fast no richard dunn is he's one of the one of the, my favorite players to have played with I've played with him twice at city and at qpr so quick so tough like so reliable. But how are you so quick when you are when you're that enormous? I because he juggernaut. Yeah, I, I, I'm not just saying the guy was fat because he wasn't, no. but like it, 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 the muscle weighs right. Yeah. And I know Usain Bolt is really big and he's a sprinter. He doesn't different. have a sprinter's build either, no. right? His backside was like the size of a building. Right? Yeah, Richard Dunn's thick. Richard, like he makes Wayne Rooney look like Diet Dunn. You know, <laughs> that's the way to see it. Richard Dunn was like. Goliath, but so quick, so good at football as well. Class is just my kind, my kind of guy. Uh, Frank Kessie is on his way to Al Ahly. Got some savings for Barca and a fifty million fee. Not bad. So yeah, so I think I do know Jules and I are massive Frank Kessie fans. Um, Barcelona, wrong place, wrong time. I think for him to really could you turn it down though at that time no no no. i look I, I, he, he didn't know that things were going to go the way they did when 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 he signed for them uh i think barcelona and there must some stereotyping going like oh look you know he's big and strong and runs around a lot look maybe he'll you know replace busquets one day and uh no frank Kessie is an attacking midfielder right uh but then of course you're attacking midfielder in a club that has 
Pedri and Gavi and you know the Fred, uh, Frankie de Jong's there too. So totally makes sense that they let him go. He's on a good wage as well, having signed as a free agent. I think the fifty million uh, fee is not a bad fee after one year. Um, I'm a bit disappointed that he's going to Al Ahly because it feels like he's kind of doing it because that's the best deal and that's what can keep paying his wages. I think he could have a major impact at a lot of different, a lot of big clubs in Europe. He's a tremendous player. He's got great personality. He's super smart. He's just a leader. And yeah, I, I, not dissing the Saudi Pro League, but you know, when we talk about players who are moving there for a big payday or, or players who are moving there at the end of their careers or whatever, and this is one guy who who doesn't fit that mold, and, and I would have wanted him to stick around. Lionel Messi is off to a rip-roaring start in Miami, Nadim. He bagged another two goals as Inter-Miami drew 4-4 in League's Cup action against FC Dallas. FC Dallas. That's seven goals in four games for him. I, I didn't expect him to find it this easy after his layoff. Did, did you? <laughs> um, I think it's always going to be easier when he can bring like Busquets and bring Alba and people like that. Yeah, Busquets know. for his work rate. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, you know, things he's comfortable with. But I love Messi. Like, he's my favorite player of all time. So to see him play really well in a league which I played in, you know, I do really enjoy that. Um, so I'm not hating on it. I know some people think this is the anti-Ronaldo podcast, the anti-Ronaldo network, but like Messi's scored seven in four. Yeah, like, it's good for that Wait, league. Let me just ask you this, because there's also some people who make the point that because it's US, MLS, and you know, people like strikers more than defenders. Oh, that's a fact, yeah. They spend all their money on strikers. That's a fact. And they generally have rubbish defenders. Now, having been an MLS defender yourself, well, uh, yeah. is that really fair? No, it's not to say that it's unfair. But there's always more excitement when you sign a striker as a DP, as designated player. Than Giorgio Chiellini. So much more excitement <laughs> because the defensive side of things, like I think the teams that win things in MLS, they're good from front to back, but still they want to have that reason to bring people to the stadium and it's always going to be an attacker. So it's not to say the defenders are bad. Mm -hmm but the investment's not the same and it's nowhere near the same. So some of the defenders that are there, they're the ones who maybe came through the college system or something like that. And they are, they're good, but when Messi's dominated football at bigger and better clubs and in different leagues, yeah, yeah, yeah. then all of a sudden when he comes up against a guy who's at like, I don't know, Ohio State two years earlier, it's probably not going to match up well, but fair, fair play, he's, he looks like he's trying. He looks like he's involved. And that's exactly what that team and that league needs. And those seven in four, again, to make sure people understand this isn't an anti-anything, that's very good for that league. doesn't change world football at all, but it's very good for that league. So I'm happy he's doing well. <laughs> uh, Cristiano Ronaldo scores as Al Nasser beat Morocco's Raja Casablanca in something called the Arab Club Champions Cup. Can't say I've heard of it, Gab. Mm. But they're through to the semifinals, but Ronaldo went viral for something else. Yeah, so this is really weird, and this is forwarded to me by uh, a Saudi friend of mine. But basically, uh, there's a woman named Halima Boland who is a big star in, uh, she's got three and a half million followers uh, on Instagram and stuff. She's like a TV, she's staying in the same celebrity type. So she posted this video where she's in her hotel room, she's staying in the same hotel as Cristiano. She gets a call on her hotel phone and hotel telephone and the hotel telephone yeah um and this is like hello it's cristiano and it turns out cristiano says like oh i was gonna call my friend uh but i must have the wrong number and she says oh but i am your friend and so on and it's giggle giggle ha 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 i love you cristiano and he puts the phone down now some people 
some cynics have speculated that is, is this you yeah okay. um, <laughs> maybe this isn't real is it possible that somebody said hey cristiano do me a solid call this random number and stuff so that she can post it on her instagram cristiano says yeah well, i gotta be a bad guy because it doesn't seem plausible to i i when is the last time you have called another hotel room no i no. we have mobile phones right yeah. if you want to reach your friend you gotta call you just ping them you whatsapp them right yeah that's that's exactly right like it, it's the equivalent of having in my mind like a house phone and just thinking okay I'll tell you what i need to speak to someone let me call them in that now you don't even know if they're there <laughs> exactly like what, like what are we doing and the other thing is that wonderful coincidence I, I wonder if she just starts filming every time the phone rings every time her hotel phone rings yeah. she happens to be filming but it could be listen anyway we just nice one cristiano uh that brings us to an end natum thank you for uh Pleasure. filling jules's let's say big boots but he's got tiny little feet actually <laughs> yeah. um we're gonna be back on thursday until then love the game love your neighbor love yourself We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is to not search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash gab. Just go to Indeed.com slash gab right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash gab. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 